It's a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be in the locker room. The game's changing. And uh, with a changing game, feels like the fourth quarter, the intensity of the moment. Who's excited about this? Come on, that's what I love. I mean, this, for Christian, this is not a time for us to be complaining or, or moaning about the things that are going on in the world. This is a time for us to be excited because the opportunity has never been easier for us to stand out and to show the world Christ. So that's, what I'm, that's why I'm inspired by the uh, book that we're studying right now, Revelation. Uh, why don't we turn there right now? Our approach to Revelation, which is the last book in our Bibles, a book that many Christians either avoid or, or I don't know how to finish that sentence, to be honest with you, because I don't want to. I do, but I don't want to. Um, in fact, what I'd like to do, I wish we could just, everything that we've heard about this book, I wish we could completely set it aside and just start afresh. Um, because our approach here, it's, it's not to say that we're, we're finally right and, and other people are wrong, um, but our approach is that as we read and understand Revelation, that we do it the same way we read and understand the rest of the Bible. So instead of running this part of the Bible to our world, we're going to first work hard to learn what it meant to that world. And then run it to our world. And we've already discovered that Revelation is a letter. It's a letter written to seven specific churches for a very specific purpose. A great ordeal is about to occur to them, an ordeal that we're going to learn about more today. And, and the letter is essentially a vision that Jesus gives to John that John in turn is to pass on to these seven angels, these seven pastors of these seven churches. And the vision is what is about to take place in the Roman Empire, what they're about to endure, namely these seven churches. So we learn in chapter four, that's where the vision starts, that the most comforting reality in all the world is that God sits on his throne, that God is, is, is not walking back and forth like me right now, pacing his hands and, and, and wringing them like, oh no, I hope this works out, but he sits because he reigns, because he rules, because he has the whole world in his hands. And gathered around the throne is the entire cosmos, worshiping the one who sits on the throne, saying, you are worthy, for you created all things, and by you they, they were created. Then in chapter 5, the vision zooms in on, on this scroll that's in the hand of the one who sits on the throne. The, the scroll represents the king's edict. It's the king's plans and purposes for the world. But no one can open it because it's sealed by God himself. John begins to weep 
He goes to this place of despair. He weeps until he sees the one standing next to the throne. Because there standing next to the creator of the world is the redeemer of the world, Christ. And not only do you have the whole cosmos gathered around the one who sits on the throne, but also gathered around the one who stands next to the throne, they're all worshiping. And they're even worshiping the Christ, saying, worthy are you, for you are slain, and you, you are the one who is to receive power, glory, wisdom, and strength, because with your blood you purchased, you redeemed people from every tribe, every people group, every nation on the face of the earth. I love how John describes the Christ, the glorified Christ that he sees. He describes him as a lamb, a slaughtered lamb. Because this is how Christ triumphs. This is how Christ wins. He doesn't win the Roman way of conquering, but God's way of being conquered. Not the Caesar way of your life for me, but, but, but Christ's way of my life laid down for you. So now we've gotten to Revelation 6. And let's turn there. If you can stand. Let's read chapter 6. My text today is Revelation 6 to 11. You're going to know in a real hurry that I'm only giving you a framework. I'm only giving you tools to further reading and studying this for yourself. There's no way I can cover it all. And I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures saying a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. And he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. And when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given a th- power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. And when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse and its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, of course the altar is the thing in the temple where the blood of the lamb is poured out representing the blood of the worshiper whose life was spared. And I saw under the altar the lives of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed 
just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth. Sackcloth is a picture of repentance. Sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. Every mountain and island was, was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the Lord, judgment day, the day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Who can stand? God's word, you may be seated. Come on now, who wants to preach this this morning? <laughs> so Christ takes the scroll. The scroll is the king's edict. It's the plans and purposes of the one who sits on the throne. So if that's the scroll, what are the seals? The seals are God's judgment. A judgment day of sorts. Being poured out. I want us to think about that. I want us to, before we even understand the specifics of this, I want us to know that God is judge. He's a judge. And that so much of the church today, we love the idea that, that God is our father, that God is our friend, that God is our rescuer, that God is our healer, that God is our redeemer. We like that, but we don't like the idea that God is a judge who will judge us. He's going to judge the world. And I'm going to be really blunt right now. I think part of the reason why we go around this or we avoid this is because we become soft. We don't like the hard things in life. We don't like the hard truths. And, and, and we apply this to God because more and more we live in a world a, a, a world that just wants to believe, I'm okay, you're okay, our world is okay, everything's okay, and that God is okay if there is a God with my okay, with your okay, with everything being okay. Wait, did that make sense or not? <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that God is not okay with a world that is not okay. And he's not okay with people who aren't okay. And I think the fact that God is judge means that life is not meaningless. 
Because if there is no judge, think about it. Everything you are, everything you say, everything you do, it's, it's completely arbitrary and relative and meaningless. But because there is a judge, it means that all of life matters. It means that every one of our decisions matter. It means that everything that we say and do and think, it has an eternal weight to it. Now, I think part of the reason why, why Christians are twitchy at this idea of, of judgment, I mean, we just already have in our, in our mind judgment being such a negative thing. It's, it's partly because we just, when we think judgment, we, we think of things like punishment and condemnation. And then when we apply this to God, we, we, we just think, okay, God is this, this harsh, angry God who just kind of comes and, and, and doles out condemnation and punishment. But let me take you to the, the, the root meaning of the biblical word ju- for judgment. It's justice. See, this is what a judge does. A, a, a judge brings justice. So when the Bible speaks about God coming to judge the world, it, it's talking about God coming to bring justice to the world. And God's justice isn't merely punitive. God's justice is primarily restorative. It's God restoring. It's it's God making everything right again. That's why God's justice is gospel. It's good news. Now, Now for the people who live life on the top, who, who know a lot of privilege in this world where life at every turn is, is more than fair, the excitement of God as judge is just kind of blah. But for the little guy, the, the, the guy on the bottom, the, the one who's constantly treated unfairly, who's oppressed time and time again, and who has no leverage to make it right, the idea of God's justice makes them dance. That God the righteous judge would come, that he would turn the tables, he would punish the oppressor, he would lift up the oppressed, he would turn unfair into fair, he would, he would take my life and put it on, on a fair, steady ground. See, this is why the psalmist, because the people of God in the Old Testament, they are the little guy. They are constantly oppressed. They're constantly saying to God, how long, O Lord? How long? And then you have Psalms like, like Psalm 96. Let me just turn there. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. God will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant. Let everything in them be filled with joy. Let all the trees of the forest sing. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Because he comes and he comes to judge the earth. That's what causes the mountains to sing. 
That's what causes uh, the fields to be glad. That's what causes all creation to rejoice, is that God is going to come and he's going to judge the earth. It's gospel. That God would come and judge and make everything right. And so Revelation 6 is Christ opening the seven seals. It's the good news of Psalm 96, that God is going to come and judge the earth. Now the seven seals that we just read about, they they describe the, the flavor, the nature, the aspects of this judgment. And when you keep reading Revelation, you're going to see that the seven seals are followed by another series of judgments, the seven trumpet blasts which even later in the book, uh, there are going to be the seven bowls. And each of these series, these, these seven-fold kind of judgment, there, there, there are three of them. And so one of the questions that, that scholars ask, are these different judgments, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, Or are they the same judgment, just seen from a different view? This is probably a good time for me to tell you that Revelation is not always a linear book. It oftentimes is circular. It it likes to circle back and retell the same event. Just like when you're reading the four Gospels, you read Matthew, which tells us about the, the, the life and ministry of Jesus, And then you start Mark, and it retells the story again. And then you circle back to Luke, and it retells the story again. You go to John, and it circles back and retells the story again. So many scholars see the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls as this circular retelling of the same sevenfold judgment. Now, something that supports this option When you carefully study the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, you're going to see that they have a consistent structure because the first four are grouped together like we just read today in the seven seals. The first four are the four horses and the rider. Then you're going to see with each of these three sets that the fifth and sixth are quite different and random, and then there's an interlude or a pause. Followed by the seventh, which is this kind of almost final cataclysmic judgment. So let's look closely at these seven seals. God help me right now. (laughs) PowerPoint. Can you guys read that? I should have made the font just a little bit bigger. Um, As I mentioned, the first four are, are a horse and its rider. Um, Verse 2, when you look at the text, the white horse represents warfare. White in the ancient world, when it's worn, uh, symbolizes victory. That's why the saints in Revelation are in white robes. They're victorious. That's why at the end of Revelation, Christ is going to be on a white horse, wearing a white robe as the victorious one. But here the white horse is a victorious king or or dictator who conquers through war. Verses 3 to 4, you have the red horse, which represents all the bloodshed that ensues from this warfare. 
Verse 5, the black horse represents famine, but it's not just any kind of famine. It's, it's the famine that also ensues, that kind of humanitarian crisis that follows when a conquering king comes in. Because when you read the description here, poor people barely have enough money for, for barley, but the rich are still whining and dining. The pale horse in verse 7 and 8 represents death. Then you get to the fifth seal in verses 9 to 11. This represents those who have suffered for the word of God and because of their testimony. They're called martyrs, which in the Greek just means witness. But sometimes to bear witness means you're a martyr. And look at them. What are, what, what are they doing? They're, they're crying out to God. What are they crying out to God for? They probably have psalms like Psalm 96 in, in their minds or Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord? How long until you come as the judge to judge the earth, to right this wrong, to vindicate us? How long? Verse 12, the sixth seal is, is like a final judgment where the whole world quakes because God is coming and he's coming to judge. Where people literally, when they see him coming, they want to hide in the rocks and in the caves. And then if you would skip forward to Revelation 8 verse 1, you get the seventh seal. But before the seventh seal is opened, there's silence. And then you have the seven trumpets, which most scholars, like I said, see as a retelling of God's judgment from a different perspective, uh, namely using the plague language of Exodus to describe what is going to happen. Now, what does this all mean? Well, rather than just running to our world, let's go to the first century. Let's get a first century context. In that context, who needs to be judged? Rome. Rome has declared war on God and his people. God's people, both Jew and Christian at this time, are viewed as an enemy of the state. And Rome is after them. And God's people are going to lose a lot. They're going to lose their reputation. They're going to lose their status. They're going to lose um, their comfort. They're, many of them are going to lose property. And some of them are going to lose their lives. And that's why in verse 10, with this kind of oppression, the saints are crying out, how long? How long, O oh Lord? Now here's the interpretive challenge with this. The four horse and riders clearly represent Rome. Yet isn't Rome supposed to be the one judged as opposed to being the agent of God's justice? Shouldn't Rome 
be running from those four horses as opposed to riding them. And now here's your second option for this. In light of a first century, first audience understanding. And this is the one I hold to. The seven seals and the seven trumpets are not God's judgment on Rome. They are God's judgment on unrepentant Israel. And the seven bulls, which we will study later, those are God's judgments on Rome. Now, if the seven seals and the seven trumpets are God's judgment on unrepentant Israel, the question becomes, why would God judge Israel? And the answer to that question is read your Old Testament. Because what you will find is that God's worst judgment is always reserved for his people. And over and over again, God says to the prophets, I will judge you, unrepentant Israel. I will judge you, unrepentant Judah. In fact, let me just give you just a small fraction of some of the, the, the prophecies in the Old Testament about this. Ezekiel 39 says, The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they disobeyed me. I hid my face from them, so I gave them into the hand of their enemies. All of them fell, fell by the sword. Not only is Israel going to know that, but the whole world is going to know. That was my judgment on them. Deuteronomy 28 says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth. As an eagle, interestingly enough, uh, the Roman symbol was the eagle. As an eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who you will have no, res- who will have no respect for the old, no, no sure any favor to the young. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. The Lord your God will bring extraordinary plagues, that's the language of the seven trumpets, on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one, end, from one end of the earth to the other. And among those nations you shall find no rest. There will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart a failing of the eyes, and a despair of the soul. In fact, when you read the prophets, the prophets in detail describe the, the in- instruments of God's judgment in the exact way John does. Famine, sword, bloodshed, pagan armies. Even in Zechariah 1 and 6, you have the four horsemen. Now look at the sixth seal in verse 15, please. Let's look at our text. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains 
This is what the Jewish people always do when, when pagan armies climb. I can take you to so many caves to this day where the Jewish people, uh, where, where they hid. And they called to the mountains from these caves and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can, who can stand? Now turn with me to Isaiah 2. See, we, we, we just run this to all these fanciful inter- interpretations today without, first of all, asking, is this in the text anywhere? I love to hear the pages of, of God's word being... Isaiah 2... We'll just start with seven. It's just God's judgment. My heading here is called the day of the Lord. It's God's judgment on who? On Israel. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. That may be the only thing you hear today. Do you worship what you do and what you accomplish and what you build and what you make? And so people will be brought low and everyone humbled And do not forgive them. Go into the rocks. Hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. It's for Israel. And you read the text, and and, and throughout you see how God uses pagan armies and famines and plagues to judge his people. Because God reserves his fiercest judgment on his people because the calling on God's people is so great and, and so consequential. And so God's used Philistines in the Bible. God's used Babylonians. He used Cyrus the Great from Persia, who he literally calls my anointed, my Messiah. And now he's using Romans. And then when you remember the words of Jesus, I mean, Jesus spoke about these things. He forewarned his disciples about this very judgment day. A judgment day that he says some will see in your very own lifetime. A judgment where he says even God's house, the temple, it's going to be destroyed because it needs to be destroyed. Because that temple is no longer God's house. God's house is Jesus. And Jesus passed that on to us. We are now the temple of God. In fact, Jesus even pastors his disciples and he says when you see a specific sign, which he calls the abomination of desecration uh, from the book of Daniel, which is when a pagan temple replaces God's house. When you see that, get out and run. 
And so here's John in Revelation using the same language as Jesus, using the same language as the prophets before him, the language of earthquakes and famines and warfare and bloodshed. Now let me give you a little first century history. And now I'm telling you how I date this book. This book is dated somewhere before 64 AD, Revelation, in my mind. Because in 64 AD, the Roman emperor Nero unleashes a brutal persecution against Christians. And trust me, it was brutal. It took out Paul. Nero had Peter uh, crucified upside down. The Roman historians tell us that, that uh, he would entertain himself at night by lighting up these huge torches that would light up the whole city of Rome. And you know what the torches were? They were Christians being lit on fire. That's 64 AD. In 66 AD, Rome now comes with its, with its war machine to Israel to crush it, the Jews. Thousands upon thousands of Jews were put to the sword. The blood flowed. Then they laid siege to Jerusalem. You can write, read about all this in the writings of Josephus, who is writing, he's literally an eyewitness to this. He describes this as the darkest of days. He says thousands of Jews starved to death. They literally fought each other for the scraps. He said more Jews were killed by Jews than by Romans. He says that mothers grew so desperate for food that they ate their own babies. He said that Romans, literally, to make a mockery of what was going on as they laid siege to this, would, would on every single day crucify 500 Jews. Imagine every day waking up and looking outside the city walls, this Roman army and 500 of your own in agony on crosses. By 70 AD, the Romans made good of Jesus' prophecy. Jerusalem is sacked. The temple's completely destroyed. And they did this in three and a half years. And why do I say three and a half years? Because turn your Bibles to Revelation 11. You don't have to. It's just a text about three and a half years. And I was given a read like a measuring Rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And here in this sixth seal, which describes this judgment day, it says, it, 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 the whole uh, chapter 6 ends with who can stand? Who can stand? And then you go into Revelation 7, 2 through 4, and it gives us the answer. He says, Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, but do not harm the land or the sea or the tre trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God, and then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from 
all the tribes of Israel. And then you read next, and it's 12,000 from each tribe. Who gets marked? A remnant. A remnant from where? Israel. These are not just Jews. These are Jews who identify with Christ. I know Christians today think there's not a Jewish Christian, is there? Are you kidding me? Here's what Christians forget. The church at this time is largely Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. The 12 apostles were Jews. Paul is a Jew. The first 3,000 converts uh, that, that occur in Acts 2 at Pentecost, they're all Jews. In fact, they're Jews from all over the Roman Empire. They come in for this feat and they confess Jesus is Lord. They believe that Christ was raised from the dead and they go back to their hometowns with this in their heart and this on their mouths. And this number of 144,000, this is not a literal number because we know in the Jewish mind that the number 12 symbolizes a complete family. And this is 12 squared. This is a complete, complete family. It symbolizes the faithful remnant, the faithful remnant of Israel who are sealed by God when God uses Rome to bring his judgment on them. And if you don't like this, then go to Ezekiel 9 with me. And this is God's judgment now coming down on his temple. And I'll start with verse 3. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel went up from among the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. And then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had a writing kit on his side. And he said to him, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. And as I listened, I said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men, the women, the mothers, the children. But do not touch anyone who has the mark. This is a prophecy for Israel. This is a prophecy when the temple is going to come down. The question is, who can stand? Who can stand? It's, it's those who are sealed. It's those believing Jews who follow the Lamb. God is going to protect them. He's going to seal them. That's a beautiful reality. That when God's judgment comes, God's People are sealed. We're protected. Now, what does this mean for us? Huh, this is awesome. We've got to step into Revelation 7 just a little bit. Start with verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing 
white robes, the robes of victory. They're holding palm branches, the symbol of victory in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We join this remnant as God's people to fulfill the promise that God makes all the way at the beginning to Abraham. That Abraham, through you, you're going to become a family. Your family's going to become a people. And through this people, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth from every single family on the face of the earth. And now we just read the fulfillment of that. We're grafted into it. We're brought into this family of God. I'll tell you what also this means. It means that God is the judge and that he is going to judge the earth. Yes, Revelation made sense to that first century audience because there was a first century judgment day. But just like that judgment day, just like the judgment day that occurred in Eden after Adam and Eve's sin, just like the judgment day in Exodus when God unleashed his judgment on both Egyptian and Israelite, all these judgment days only point to a future judgment day. A great and dreadful day of the Lord. And the question will be, who will stand? And before I answer that question, we need to know this. And we need to join the psalmist in Psalm 96. And say, God, would you come? Would you come and judge the earth? Remember last year I took Gabe on a visit to Wheaton College to look at the football program. The football coach literally had a podium like this. He's this California dude with long hair. 55 years old. He walks out to this podium and he says to all this, this room full of parents with these football prospects, he says, my football program will speak for itself. You, you can go on the internet. You can get a sheet of paper. You can see how well we do. We almost win our conference every year. He says, that's not what I want to talk to you about. He said, what I want to talk to you about, do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Because if you don't, we're not right for you. You're not right for us. And then he said, my dad died when he was 60 years old. I'm 55 years old. You know what that means? That means five years from now, I may see him face to face. And he had such excitement at that thought. Because he knows 
that when God comes to judge the earth, he will be one who can stand. And why can we stand? It's not because we're so good. It's not because we went to church our whole life. He's going to judge both pagan and churchgoer, both religious and irreligious, righteous, unrighteous. And no one can stand except for those who are sealed. And those who are sealed are those who identify heart, soul, and life with Jesus Christ. Do you identify with him today? Do you love him? Do you live for him? Do you worship him? The picture is so awesome in Revelation 7. In verse 9, you have God's family standing. <laughs> standing. We're, st- we're going to be standing before the throne of God. Verse 13 We're going to be clothed in white. We're going to be victorious. And who are these people? They're the ones who come out of the great ordeal. Both Jew and Gentile who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Who literally were slaughtered. But as the lamb was slaughtered and was raised and stands... They were slaughtered and raised, and they stand. Imagine being a first century Christian, and, 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 and at your gathering, you found out so-and-so was arrested. And, and, and then a little bit later, it gets a little bit closer, and, and, and you find out one of your family members is arrested. And then it gets even more devastating. You find out that Nero literally put some of them to death, and You're feeling this threat. And you get this letter. And you not only find out that the lamb wins, but you see how the lamb wins, that he wins through death. It's life through death. It's victory through defeat. What does Paul say our true worship is? Our true worshiper is offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Paul said, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection. And so many Christians stop there and don't read the next. He said, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection. And I want to have deep fellowship in Christ's sufferings. And you know what else we have to look forward to? Look at verse 17. And the lamb will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of Mayim Kaim, living water. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Samwise, Gamchi, to Gandalf, will all the sad things of this world become untrue? Yes, the lion from the tribe of Judah. He has overcome. He wins. And he will wipe every tear 
from our eyes. Let's pray. God, it's the last, last words of this book. Maranatha. Maranatha. Come. Lord Jesus, come. Come and judge the earth. Come and make it all right. And if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, who hasn't trusted you as their Lord and Savior. May salvation come to their heart and their home today. May they give their life to you. And for those of us who know you, may we follow you and worship you with our bodies being living sacrifices. In Jesus' name.